Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another week of Disastrous History. This week we're going to head back to the hills of West Virginia. That's right, it's another mining disaster episode. Well, kind of. This week's episode covers the Buffalo Creek Flood and Mining Disaster on February 26, 1972. Now before I get too far into this episode, I want to cover a couple things. The end of this episode gets pretty far into PTSD and survivor guilt. This disaster is one of the key incidents that helped us to further our understanding of PTSD and survivor guilt. So I wanted to start this episode with, if you have suspicion of having PTSD or survivor's guilt or depression or anxiety or any of those kinds of things, and you happen to go through a crisis, I wanted to give out the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number. It is 1-800-273-8255, available any time of day, day or night. There was always someone there to talk to, so if you need someone to talk to, call that number, please. And I just want you to know that if when we get to that end of the episode, if you need to stop, just stop there. We don't want anybody to have any issues caused by this episode, so I just wanted to put the warning at the beginning of the episode. I appreciate you guys for listening, and I don't want anyone to have any problems caused by listening to this episode. As always, let's start with the background of Buffalo Creek. Buffalo Creek is a creek in the eastern half of Logan County, West Virginia. It is a typical narrow valley creek that winds and unwinds and twists and turns some 17 or so miles through the valley in between two high ridges and went through about 16 different small mining towns that had sprung up along the valley before Buffalo Creek meets the Guyandot River to the west. So it runs east to west towards the Guyandot, which then flows from the south to the north to meet the Ohio further up along the West Virginia border. And if you've never been to West Virginia, that's pretty typical. There are creeks in a lot of the valleys between the mountains and the Appalachians that just twist and turn between the valleys, and they're extremely narrow valleys. They're not big, wide valleys. It's not like it's the Grand Canyon or anything. They're very, very narrow. Some of the widest points in this entire stretch of the Buffalo Creek Valley are only about 600 feet wide of buildable space. So it's wider at the top, obviously, because mountains slope down, but that area is almost impossible to climb. It's just almost straight up and down in that valley. It's very narrow. So oftentimes, these towns were one road. It was just a road that went through the middle of the town and all the houses were on either side of it. Occasionally, they'd have some houses that ran perpendicular to the valley, where they were roads that were ran perpendicular to the valley that they'd have some houses on. But generally, these were very small towns of maybe... 20 homes, 15 homes. It, it's just not a very big area. It's not a well-populated area. That entire 17-mile stretch in 1972 had about 5,000 people living along it. And basically everyone in these towns worked in some form of coal mining. They worked for a coal mining company. Basically everyone. Unless they were working for some town service, which was generally paid by the coal mining company because these are coal towns these are coal camps the company owns the town that's just how it is so 
This disaster mainly happened along the Buffalo Creek Valley, but that's not where the disaster originated. It originated at the Middle Fork Creek, which is a tributary of Buffalo Creek. Listen, there's a lot of creeks and valleys and hollers in this episode, and I'm going to try my best to keep them all easily described and keep them separated so you know which one is which. That way, you have a good picture in your mind of where this is happening. So we have Buffalo Creek and the Buffalo Creek Valley. And for ease of description, Buffalo Creek more or less runs due west. It twists and turns and curves and all that up and down the valleys and whatnot. But it basically runs west. Middle Fork runs north and is a tributary of Buffalo Creek. So it starts to the south of Buffalo Creek and it runs north and meets Buffalo Creek north of where Middle Fork starts. So all of what is about to happen starts from the south and moves north to Buffalo Creek and then will move west down Buffalo Creek Valley. Clear as mud? That coal mining I talked about earlier basically all happened off of Middle Fork Creek. Basically all of it happens in the Middle Fork Valley because it starts going up the mountain there and Buffalo Creek is down in the valley itself. Middle Fork Creek is, or Middle Fork Valley, I'm sorry, is more of a valley off of a mountain that just kind of runs down the mountain. It's different. Similar, but different. As I said, all mining operations basically happened along Middle Fork Valley. The initial mining of the area started in 1947 with the opening of the Number 5 Mine by Laredo Coal Mining Company. Not so coincidentally, one of the towns destroyed in this disaster was named Laredo, Many of the towns are named after mining companies in West Virginia. It's just a thing. The mine would move in, they'd build the mine, and then they'd build the town after the mine and just name the mine after the mine, or name the town after the mining company. The main type of mining performed in the Middle Fork Valley is what is called auger mining. Previously, in our last two mining disasters, we talked about underground mining. The Upper Big Branch mining disaster used long wall mining and the Lake Penure disaster used room and pillar mining. Auger mining is different. It is almost entirely on the surface. Basically, a side of the coal seam is already exposed on the hillside, so a strip of rock and soil is removed to fully expose the coal seam, which is then mined out using an auger. Holes are drilled into the coal seam, and the coal is pulled out using the auger before. So it goes in a big circle, and it pulls the mine out, all the coal out of the mine. Once they can't get any more out, if there's enough coal left over, they'll get the rest with underground mining methods. They also used long wall and room and pillar in this area well in the 1960s and 1970s. Because, I mean, they're coal mining companies. Their entire goal in life is to make money, so they can't just leave perfectly good coal sitting there. So after they finish auger mining, they go and they make an underground mine to get the rest of it. And I want to get more into the actual process of coal mining because that is where this disaster stems from. It's not like the Lake Penure disaster where Texaco drilled into the ground and drained an entire lake into a salt mine. And it's not like the Upper Big Branch mining disaster where they were mining and they didn't do the proper checks and caused an explosion. This is completely different. This is in the process of after the, mo the coal has been removed from the mine. This is a, this affects more than just the miners. So in the process of mining coal, there are a couple things that are required to happen. First, 
the coal must be crushed. So as coal forms underground, it picks up impurities like clay and dead plant matter and rocks and stuff like that. And when you're doing the actual mining, you sometimes pick up the side of the mine with rocks that you don't want or the roof of the mine with rocks you don't want, stuff like that. So what they do is they, they need to separate that out. So they take it and they crush it to get it down to different sizes. After they crush it, the mixture of stuff you don't want and the coal gets washed with water and essentially sifted. So when you get two different types of materials, so you have the coal and then say limestone, they have different densities, they have different weights, stuff like that. They will, the limestone will fall out or the coal will fall out and it will be collected into just the coal and then you have that wastewater and the limestone and all that that gets discarded. Basically, after this washing process, it separates into three different things. The raw coal, which they want, the coal slurry, which is a coal wastewater mixture, and solid waste. Two of those things coal companies want nothing to do with since they can't make money off of them. Originally, they just dump all that into whatever creek or river or convenient spot nearby that wasn't where they were mining, but then we as a society realize that, uh, hey, that's not so good for, like, anything environmentally, so uh, stop doing that. So they had to come up with a different idea. It costs money to have it shipped somewhere to dump, and they can't just dump it where they're mining. It'd be in the way of getting more coal. So they find somewhere nearby, take the solid waste and make a dam, and then they take the liquid waste and they make a lake behind that dam. It's not being dumped into the river or creek or whatever, it's just sitting there, right? No problem. And that first part, just dump it into the stream, is how it started at the Buffalo Creek Mine. For the better part of 13 or so years, the Laredo Mining Company dumped its waste water directly into Middle Fork Creek and Buffalo Creek. In 1956, they were told to stop doing that because it's bad. In 1958, inspections showed that they were still, in fact, dumping wastewater in the creek. I am completely shocked that a coal company would ignore what the government told them to do. That has never, ever happened in the history of ever. And they certainly wouldn't go about not spending more money to help not pollute nearby rivers and creeks. That's absolutely not something a coal company would ever do. No, 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 no one could ever imagine that happening. Although, shockingly, nothing actually happened to them. Besides, hey, stop doing this again. And they eventually decided that, uh, yeah, we should probably stop doing this before somebody gets into power that actually wants to punish us. So in 1959, they proposed building dams to hold the water going up along Middle Fork Valley. The first part of construction of Dam Number 1 began in May 1960, right at the mouth of the Middle Fork Valley. Literally. Middle Fork Valley comes down empties into Buffalo Creek, they built the dam directly at the mouth of Middle Fork Valley. This was right where they had already started dumping the waste, the solid waste that is, from the coal mine. So basically they just expanded where they were already dumping a big pile and made it a complete dam across the entrance of Middle Fork Valley. So from that time in 1960 until the plant shut down in November of 1963, about 400,000 gallons of wastewater per day were being pumped into the area behind dam number one. 
The reason I say November of 63 is because the Laredo Mining Company shut down the mine there at that time. It sat unused for just about a year before being bought by Buffalo Mining Company in October of 1964. And the reason that's important is because the Buffalo Mining Company had no part in building dam number one. They had no engineering knowledge of how it was built. They didn't have any input. They just bought it. It was already built, so they continued to use it. So then, in 1966, Buffalo Mining Company realizes they need to build a second dam called, creatively, Dam Number 2, about 600 feet upstream from where Dam Number 1 was. They literally just dumped a whole bunch of solid coal waste across the holler and called it good. No engineering work done, just dump it, fill it in, dump some more, grade it down, dump some more on top of that, grade it down, till they had a dam. Predictably, this didn't work for long, shocking, because in March of 1967, before they even finished construction on dam number two, water from melting snow filled the area behind the dam and sent water careening down into dam number one, which was also overtopped and washed away some of dam number one. This caused a small flood down in Buffalo Creek. So we have dam number one, which part of his and washed away and also was overtopped because it's already full behind it of water so when dam number two which was not yet built was overtopped all of that melt from the snow came rushing down filled up the pond behind dam number one sent water into buffalo creek now there are multiple issues with this but the big one is buffalo mining was warned that this could happen with a dam you need a way to release some water in case of a massive amount of water coming down from the sky or the mountains in this case and they had none you need some type of spillway be it a pipe or a different way to divert the water out to go around the dam so that you have some sort of control over the amount of water behind the dam because if it overtops the dam it can weaken the other side and send the entire dam come rushing down with all of the water that's being held behind the dam so after this minor flood they received Another notice to fix the issues that were being seen in these dams that they were building. This one specifically mentioned that the dam would need to be carefully engineered to prevent further floods. They complied with this by uh, making the dam taller but without any engineering work done. And although they did install a 30 inch overflow pipe to help prevent the dam being overtopped again. But uh it's not super helpful when you consult literally zero engineers. There were no engineers consulted at all in the building of dam number one or dam number two. Just so we're clear on how much money mining companies are willing to spend on safety. So let's fast forward to February of 1968. So that was 1966. We're now in February of 1968. The West Virginia Department of Natural Resources received a complaint from Mrs. Pearl Woodrum of Saunders. Saunders is a town that is literally at the base of the Middle Fork Valley. So there's dam number one, and then a few hundred feet away is an entire town of people. The town of Saunders. Saunders had received some flood damage in that previous flood where they just didn't do anything to stop it. and It just kind of went over the top of the dams. They were like, ah, we'll just make the dam taller. That'll fix the problem. She was concerned that the dam would fail again. 
obviously, for good reason, because it already did once, and they did essentially nothing to prevent it from happening again. And so West Virginia Department of Natural Resources sent out an inspector to look at it and see if there were any problems, and they came back with a, nah, it's good. Although they did have reservations that the drain pipe couldn't handle enough excess runoff from rainfall or snowmelt, which is conveniently what caused the last flood, but uh, they didn't actually tell them to make any changes or really do much of anything besides saying, nah, I think it's fine. They did mention one more thing, though, that they should keep dam heights under 15 feet so they don't have to inspect it for approval. Basically, they told Buffalo Mining to keep their dams short enough so that they wouldn't have to worry about the government coming out and telling them how to build their dams. Which is what we love in our governmental agencies tasked with preventing thousands of gallons of water from being released all at once. We just love corruption. Because that's what that is. Basically telling them, hey, keep these smaller so we don't have to do our jobs is, uh, well, that's corruption. And West Virginia has a notorious amount of corruption relating to coal mining because that's was basically the number one industry in the entire state for the good majority of its existence as a state. But anyway, so let's get to dam number three. Because, of course, there's going to be a dam number three. All good things are trilogies. Dam number three was built in May and June of 1968 to about March of 1971, about 600 feet farther up the valley from dam number two. Again, with absolutely no one on site with any engineering expertise or knowledge, and no one doing the actual engineering design. Well, okay, that's not entirely fair. There was a design. It was drawn by hand by Mr. D.S. Dasovich. Mr. D.S. Dasovich is the vice president of Buffalo Mining. And just so we're clear on what his engineering background was... In his hearing, after the disaster, he was asked about his ability to design a dam. His exact answer was, and this is a direct quote, I wouldn't even begin to be able to engineer a thing like that. It has no... I know of no formula or any such method of so-called designing it. So, just so we're clear as to the level of actual engineering design... There, there was not, Ab Absolutely zero. He literally has no idea how to design a dam, but they're going to go ahead and go with his design anyway. It, it's a choice. It's beyond my comprehension. I cannot imagine being like, look at all this water we're pumping out. Look at all this refuse. We can't dump it in the river, so we got to come up with a dam. And you know what? I think I can design one. Let me have a beer and draw it on the back of a napkin and we'll just do that. It also helped that they didn't have to pay him any extra because he was already on the payroll of Buffalo Mining Company. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's not a great thing. It's, it's shocking that it lasted as long as it did, to be honest. And during the middle of building dam number three, the Pittston Coal Company bought Buffalo Mining. So both companies were running the area. Buffalo Mining was actually doing the mining and the washing and all that, but Pittston Coal Company was the 
over the parent company of Buffalo Mining. So I want to get into the actual building of Dam Number 3. Because I briefly talked about they were just filling it in with coal waste refuse. But uh, let's just kind of set the stage so you can get a good picture in your mind of exactly how these dams were built. As we know, and I cannot emphasize this enough, there was no engineering design, there was no engineers, absolutely none of that. So what they did to build this dam was take dump trucks and dump solid coal waste in piles a few feet apart, and then they would smash them down to be about four feet thick. They continued this process all the way across the valley. The dam would end up being between 44 and 60 feet in height, depending on where you were on the dam. These dump truck loads were continued going up the valley until the dam was about 360 feet wide at its narrowest and 480 feet wide at its thickest. From end to end, the dam was 465 feet across the entire width of the valley. Now there are a couple things they didn't take into consideration when building this dam. Number one, they didn't include any overflow protection when they built it. Like, at all. Dam number two had that 30-inch pipe installed, so if the water got high enough, it'd have a way to flow down so the whole dam didn't get overtopped. But yeah, they just uh, didn't do that, this, this one, somehow. I do not know how, but they didn't. They were like, ah, it's fine. Eventually, they would allegedly add a 24-inch pipe to help with it, but that's not going to do much with how much water was behind this dam. I say allegedly because there's some allegations no pipe was ever actually added, and the post-flood evidence did not leave evidence of a pipe at all. There are multiple witnesses that say there was a pipe, but most of them work for the company, so it's not entirely sure if they were telling the truth or not. This spillway was alleged to have been placed 7 to 8 feet below the top of the dam which is an issue because if water did have to come out of the spillway, it would erode the other side of the dam below the pipe location, thereby further weakening the dam. So they had it so that the pipe just went out and stuck straight out of the dam, and then the water would just fall onto the other side of the dam, which is made of basically mud, dirt, rocks, whatever came out of the ground. So if it gets high enough for a long enough time, it's going to, wash away whatever's below it because it's not like it's concrete so it's going to wash it away and weaken the dam like I said no forethought put into this whatsoever the second thing they didn't take into consideration was they built the dam on coal sludge which is a combination of liquid waste and solid waste so water and coal waste basically the problem with this is coal sludge has not good shear strength, which is super important when you're supposed to be holding back thousands upon thousands of gallons of water, which if you didn't know, is a ton of weight. So, shear strength is essentially the strength of a material side to side. So, you're not pushing on it, you're not pulling on it, it's if the top and bottom are moving separately, that's, that's shear strength. And coal sludge is... A lot of water and water has no shear strength whatsoever in fact while they were building dam number three part of the dam collapsed and moved the sludge away from the area and instead of thinking hey maybe we are building this on a thing that isn't super stable it should probably bring in an expert 
DS, I have absolutely no idea how to design or build a dam, Dasevich, said in his hearing that the dam collapsing meant, quote, to me, this was a good indication that we were getting the thing down on firm ground, end quote. Which begs the question, if you weren't on solid ground before, and clearly you knew that, why are you still building a dam there? And what about the rest of the dam that didn't collapse with the part that had already been built? Did that thought ever cross your mind? And then the last thing they didn't even think to consider was how much runoff from rain or snow would enter the area behind dam number three, which is mind-blowing considering they just had a dam failure from snow melt literally about a year prior to the start of building the dam. Just spectacular ignoring of any and all potential problems going on here. This is truly world-class Hall of Fame. Let's just ignore any and all problems that could come with this and make as much money as possible. And then just for good measure, a fourth dam was built in 1969, but there's no water behind it, and it doesn't really matter at all. So we're going to move past that one. In a truly spectacular case of foreshadowing, on March 25th, 1971, about 150 feet of the left side of dam number three slumped down and was more or less ignored. It was filled back in, but they didn't do anything to see why it slumped down or how to prevent it from happening in the future or just any sort of anything productive at all. They just filled it back in and moved on with their lives. At this point, the water was about 20 feet from the top of the dam, which is probably indicative of why they didn't do anything about it, because they were like, ah, we still have 20 feet of water to go. Let's just fill it in and pretend it didn't happen. So at the time of the disaster in February of 1972, Buffalo Mining and Pittston Coal Company were running several mines up in the Middle Fork Valley, and there were variously auger mines and room and pillar mines and long wall mining going on at this time. They were crushing, washing, and preparing the coal in the number five coal preparation plant. They would then separate the stuff they don't want out, dump the water behind dam number three, put the solid waste on top of the dam on occasion. Occasionally they'd move down to dam number two or dam number one, or they'd put some of the solid waste up behind dam number four, where they built dam number four, but there was no actual water behind it. They were doing all of their, a lot of their solid waste disposal there. So now we have a full picture of the mining operations and waste disposal of the Middle Fork Valley mining system. Dam number one at the entrance to the valley. Dam number two, 600 feet up the valley from that. Dam number three, 600 feet up valley from dam number two. All three of these dams had large amounts of water built behind them. And I'm going to give you a spoiler here. Dam number three is the first dam that failed. So we're going to specifically focus on how much water was behind dam number three at the time. So behind dam number three, there were about 500 gallons of water per minute being pumped into that pond for 10 hours per working day. So that's about 300,000 gallons of water a day. 300,000 gallons of water weighs 2.5 million pounds, just to give you an idea. Working days were usually six days a week, but I'll be generous and say it's five days a week. That way we don't have any weirdness of holidays or whatever. We can just say it's five days a week, and 
we'll give the coal company the benefit of the doubt for some reason. The dam was finished in March of 1971. The flood happened at the tail end of February, so we will just make it easy and say exactly a year. There are 260 working days in a year if you work five days a week. That number is probably low since coal mine weeks were usually six days and sometimes seven days a week, but it's just not worth the hassle trying to figure that out, and it will, again, give the coal company the benefit of the doubt. So let's take our 300,000 gallons of water per day and multiply it by 260. That is 78 million gallons of water. A gallon of water weighs 8.34 pounds. Multiply that by 78 million and you get a weight of 650 million pounds. And that's not even accounting for any water that had built up during the construction of the dam. And this whole dam is built on coal slush, which has terrible sheer strength. You see where this is going. And before we get into where this is going, I want to bring something up. There are two different reports for this event. There's a Governor's Special Commission report and a Citizens Commission report. The Citizens Commission was created after the Governor at the time, Arch Moore, more on him later, refused to include coal miners, survivors of the flood, or environmentalists on the committee he formed, which appeared to be filled with people who would be inclined to protect their own butts in the report, as several of them have direct and indirect responsibility for the disaster. So the citizens made their own report using environmentalists and coal miners and people that were actually affected by the flood. This episode uses a combination of both reports and several other federal government reports for sourcing, taking into account biases inherent in all the reports. Because obviously, the governor's report's going to have some bias, taking some of the heat off of the people who were supposed to inspect the dam, and also, because it had some coal executives off it, off of the coal company, and the citizen's report is going to be extremely harsh on the coal companies and harsh on the governmental reports whether or not there's actually evidence there supporting it. So, just wanted to get that out there. And so with that, let's get into the failure and the disaster. The Buffalo Creek flood occurred on Saturday, February 26th, 1972. But our story is going to start on Tuesday, February 22nd, 1972. On that day, a federal mine inspector and one of Buffalo Mining safety inspectors arrived at dam number three and... To make a long story short, basically said it was all good. Mr. Dasovich, again, because he's going to come up regularly throughout this, also witnessed the dam that morning and reported that the water was kind of high and he had met, estimated it to be about three or so feet below the alleged drain pipe. So that puts the water about 10 to 11 feet below the top of the dam, give or take a few inches or feet or whatever. Not, It's basically 10 to 11 feet. Didn't do anything about it, though. Just went on with his business. Noted it was high and moved on. The next time anyone reports being at dam number three was on Thursday, February 24th. Jack Kent, one of the superintendents for Buffalo Mining, went and looked at the water behind dam number three at around 4 p.m. that Thursday. He decided to use a limb from a tree. I'm not joking. He used a limb from a tree as a measuring stick to see how far the water was from the crest of the dam. He estimated it to be about 5 feet below the top. The stick was attached to the dam so he would have a consistent measurement about 12 inches below the crest of the dam. So 
there's the top of the dam, and then a foot, and then the start of the stick, and the stick stuck down from there. He did note he could no longer see the opening of the pipe that's supposed to be the spillway protection. That's the one where we don't actually know if it was there or not, but he says he couldn't see it at this time. This means that the spillway protection was not working. There should be enough water releasing so that it doesn't go completely underwater. You at least should be able to see it. If it's underwater, it has failed. If it's so far underwater you can't see it, well, you're going to want to be somewhere else. It's like the sink in your bathroom. Sinks have that hole at the top, so if the drain gets clogged, it'll stop the water from overflowing. Basically, when you push down the little thing in the middle for the, middle for the drain, and it fills up, and then there's that little hole, and once you get that high, it starts going down that hole and draining out. That's what the spillway protection is was supposed to be for this dam. If that's not working, you need to fix something super quick. Uh, he would not fix anything. He just left. After noting that the water was high, of course, but didn't do anything else. Our next check-in on the dam was good old Mr. Dasevich again at 6 a.m. on Friday, February 25th. He said that the dam was alright and there were no worries. He certainly didn't tell the coal mines up the hill to stop mining coal or washing coal or anything like that. That would have cost the company money, and God forbid we do that. In an interesting side note, at 10.30 a.m. on February 25th, 1972, the Pittston and Buffalo Mining Companies had a meeting with the West Virginia Department of Natural Resources to discuss opening a new mine. Attending this meeting, a man named McDonald Smith, a drainage engineer. So they had access to them if they wanted, but uh, they clearly didn't want to because, again, that would cost money. So that's just a, an amusing side note that all of this could have been avoided if the dam had been mentioned to the literal drainage expert that was there on the site the day before the disaster, but they didn't. They didn't even mention it in the meeting, mentioned nothing about the dams, nothing like that, just talking about the new mine, gotta keep making money. Anyway, back to it. At 4 p.m. that Friday, Jack Kent checked the water level again and had realized it had risen about a foot and a half since the last time he checked. Realizing that, uh, hey, maybe we have an actual problem here, Kent called Dasevich and was like, hey man, I'm going to stay here and check this regularly overnight. It seems kind of bad. He noted the water was rising about an inch per hour up until about 3.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 26th. Then in a fun twist, it began to rise two inches per hour after that. At 4.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 26th, the measuring stick Kent was using, which is literally just a branch from a tree, don't forget that, only had about three inches left uncovered. He, that meant there was about 15 inches left before the water was overtopping the dam because he had taped it about a foot below the top of the dam. At 5 a.m., Saturday, February 26th, Kent called Dasevich to be like, uh, come look at this, it's probably bad, I don't know, maybe we should do something about this, nah, maybe, hmm. Dasevich and Kent checked the dam together, water had covered the stick, and was about a foot from overtaking the top of the dam. Dasevich, however, decided this wasn't an issue, because he'd seen water like this before. That's literally what he said in his hearing. He'd seen water like that before, so I'm not concerned about it. Never mind the fact the water was still actively rising. Oh, and one more thing, 
they saw several cracks across the surface of the dam that were many, many feet long. No big deal. I'm sure it's nothing that the dam is literally cracking and just about to be overtopped by water. That's not a problem. And just to give you a good idea, somewhere north of 100 million gallons of water were sitting behind a dam that has failed twice and has absolutely no engineering expertise built into its design. That is the situation here. I'm sure it'll be fine. Spoiler alert, it would not be fine. They did decide at that point that they should add some more overflow protection. They were going to dig a trench through the top of the dam and install another 24-inch pipe to help the overflowed overflow pipe. I don't know what exactly they thought this was going to do, but uh, at least they were trying something, I guess. Dasevich would then travel down to his office in Laredo and pass by two deputy sheriffs at the Laredo Elementary School. He assured them that the dam looked alright, and they were going to do some work to make sure it stayed that way. He also told several Laredo residents that he saw nothing in particular to be alarmed about. Those two deputy chiefs were actually evacuating people because, unlike the mining company, several of these people were actually concerned, and several people that were not part of the mining company had been up to the dam to see what was going on and decided that yeah we need to get out of here which saved some lives unfortunately it would not save all of them several others meaning those not in leadership positions in the mining company would visit the dam in the hours leading up to the failure and all reported the same thing rapidly rising water cracks across the front of the dam that the surface of the dam on top was wet and spongy, and all were worried that the dam would fail. Mr. Edgar Pearson reported seeing black water seeping into the pool of water in front of Dam 3. This indicates that the sludge from underneath Dam Number 3 was leaking out from under the dam and into the water on the other side of Dam Number 3. This means that the base of the dam was rapidly losing strength. He also reported he sank into the top of the dam as he was walking across it, which means that the dam was becoming saturated with more water, and as we know, as ground becomes saturated with more water, it becomes less and less strong and has less and less sheer strength, and there's a whole bunch of weight sitting behind this dam. Mr. Pearson decided it was best to warn the residents of Saunders that the dam could fail and went through the town telling people. And just a few minutes before 8 a.m., which is basically when the dam failed, heavy equipment operator Denny Gibson walked the dam. He noticed the water was at the crest and the surface of the dam was incredibly soggy. He testified later that he had a funny feeling and knew he had to get away. He sped away to pick up his family while honking his horn and yelling warnings at people that the dam was about to fail. It's not known exactly when the dam failed since no one was there to witness it. At least no one that's still alive was there to witness it. But it was probably spectacular in its failure and it was probably right just before 8am or right at 8am. The dam likely just became so soggy, it just rolled forward. Dumping all 
100 million plus gallons in a matter of seconds, destroying dam number two and dam number one rapidly. This means that all of the water behind dam number three, combined with all of the water behind dam number two, and all of the water behind dam number one, was now rushing downhill towards Buffalo Creek Valley. Several witnesses heard very loud booms. Witnesses described the liquid wall coming at them as a wave of mud and something akin to lava except black and cold. The wall of mud hit a burning pit of coal slag, which is leftover waste that is burnt, literally burnt off, which caused several explosions that launched the mud and debris up into the air and showered people further up on the mine road. Because the mine is up farther up the valley from where the dams are so the water can run down, so it blew mud and water up into the air to people that were on the mining road up near the actual mines themselves. The first victim of the rolling wave of rocks, water, and whatever else was in the debris was the town of Saunders. Right at the entrance of Middle Fork and Buffalo Creek, it never stood a chance. The town was wiped clean off the map, and it wasn't like it left behind bits of structures or mounds of debris. Or No, there was nothing. The town was completely swept. Anyone and anything in the path was just gone. It was like a tornado that was perfectly the width of the valley came through and sucked everything away. The 20 to 30 foot wall of water wasn't going to stop there, though. Numerous witnesses report the water acting as though it was a living thing. It would hit one side of the valley and bounce across the other side, taking out some houses while leaving others completely dry. They described houses as though they were milk cartons being thrown in a river, the water completely oblivious to the weight and strength of what should be full houses. Interestingly, this is how witnesses have reported tornadoes behaving. It'll hit one house and leave another. It'll rip one house of its foundations and pass right over another one, and it won't even be damaged. This is exactly how they described the flood. The flood then turned the corner and headed straight towards the next town, Pardee. But it was now armed with the remains of the houses in Saunders and began to smash Pardee to bits. Residents had two options. Run to the side of the hill and hope you made it to the higher than the flood, or drown. And it didn't stop there. Next up would be the towns of Laredo and Lundale. Each and every witness interviewed brought up one thing over and over, the blackness of the water. It was completely black. Anything sucked into it disappeared, but the houses didn't. Entire houses bobbed up and down on top of the waves, slowly being ripped apart as this wall of mud and water and coal debris scooped up even more houses, more people, more buildings, cars, horses, anything it could get to. And to make matters worse, it would pick up gas tanks and smash them together, causing massive explosions. Power lines were snapping, causing electrical sparks and crackles to rip through the air, along with the dull roar of this massive wave of water. The next town would be Amherst. One witness described seeing one house hit a bridge, going over Buffalo Creek and getting stuck. Then a second house getting stuck in the first house. Then a third. Finally a fourth. All smashed up against this bridge with the water pushing behind them, but they couldn't fit underneath the bridge and they couldn't fit over it. And then, horrifyingly, a mobile home was shoved up against the houses before it finally was sucked under and gone forever. The witness describes being able to see three women in the big picture window of the mobile home screaming and yelling right before it disappeared into the black abyss. They were never seen again. 
As the wave of muck traveled down the valley, Sylvia Albright and her 18-year-old son, Stephen Albright, began to run from it. Sylvia was carrying her nine-month-old son, Carrie. She soon realized that she wouldn't make it, so she decided to toss Carrie as high as she could out of the water right before Stephen and Sylvia were sucked under and drowned. Carrie would be launched into the air by his mother, just out of the reach of the floodwaters. He would be found about 30 minutes later, after the waters had gone by, by the town preacher, buried upside down with only a single leg sticking out. The preacher would report hearing a soft mewling sound that led him to what he thought was a doll's leg sticking up out of the mud. Upon closer inspection, he realized that it was a baby, and that baby was miraculously still alive. Carrie would survive despite being essentially buried alive for 20 minutes upside down as a nine-month-old baby in cold debris, mud, and whatever else was in there. The wave would travel the 17 winding miles from Middle Fork to the Guyandot River in Mann, West Virginia, in a little over two hours. By 11 a.m., the last of the water had left the valley. The damage left behind was devastating. About 5,000 people had lived in the Buffalo Creek Valley before the flood. 4,000 of them would be homeless. 125 total people would die. The bodies would be found under houses, buried in debris, hanging from trees, and completely mangled. Seven of those bodies would never be found. Three young children's bodies were never identified after the flood. It's reported that they were headless, and that is why they could not be identified. Just to give you some raw numbers of the size of this flood, it is estimated that at Saunders, so the first town hit by the flood, the peak water flow was 22 million gallons per minute. That's a lot of water moving very quickly. The most probable failure of the dam is due to a chunk of the front of the dam essentially liquefying and sliding down into the pond in front of dam number three, overtopping dams one and two. A cascading failure after the first collapse brings a hole through the middle of dam number three, releasing the water, which quickly overtakes dam number two again and completely obliterated dam number one. And after that, there was no stopping it. So that's the failure mechanism, but what about the actual cause? Why did this pond go from not bursting to bursting in a matter of days? Well, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for that. There have been three main potential identified and some far-out theories as to explaining what happened. Rain, snowmelt, and the overflow of the pond by discharge from the mine are all potential causes that were investigated. The far-out-there theories are that an explosion happened inside the dam, the company actual, actually managed to dig a ditch through the dam causing its failure, and that they were using dynamite on the dam. First, the explosion within the dam. It is technically possible for there to be an explosion within the dam of coal material, because obviously coal can burn, and coal has the capability of spontaneous combustion. Spontaneous combustion is basically when a hydrocarbon, which coal is, begins to oxidize slowly. This oxidation process releases heat. If this heat becomes trapped, the hydrocarbon can eventually reach its ignition temperature and begin to start flaming combustion. This happens a lot in stains and like linseed oil and polyurethane and things like that. Stuff you use to stain wood. Very often people will throw away stain rags into plastic trash cans 
and inside those plastic trash cans, they will start to spontaneously combust inside of the wadded up rags and then catch a trash can on fire and subsequently the house or garage or whatever. This even happens sometimes if you have enough oil rags that you leave on the floor, it'll start to oxidize inside the pile of rags and will ignite. So as an aside, if you are staining, you want to make sure you spread your rags out flat in an open area so as they dry, they do not spontaneously combust. But getting back to what happened here, this was spontaneous combustion was possible to occur within the dam, but it's unlikely for multiple reasons. Number one is the dam was clearly soggy and that'll remove the heat. Multiple people reported sinking into the actual dam and when you have a soaking wet dam, you're not going to have spontaneous combustion because the heat will be dissipated. Number two, there was no evidence of any burning within the dam after the flood. There was a lot of remnants left, and none of it looked burnt. None of it had any singe marks. There was no fire damage anywhere within the dam. So this was obviously not the cause. Second, the potential ditching. There was a ditch dug on the left side of dam number two to divert water, but there was no evidence of any ditch digging around dam number three. They had talked about it in the very beginning, like right when they, like 4 a.m. on February 26th, about digging a dam around ditch number three to try and get some water to be let go so that they could prevent it from overtopping, but they never actually did it. This can be ruled out. The third far out there theory is dynamiting. Many news reports stated blasting wire and dynamite holes were found on the scene of the collapse, indicating that the company was using dynamite to release the water behind the dam. Besides this being a blatantly stupid idea, which I guess we can't really put past coal companies since they built three dams with absolutely no engineering input whatsoever, the wire that was actually found was telephone wire, and the holes were from building the road up the valley years, years prior. So this can also be ruled out. So now we can get into less conspiratorial causes. We can immediately throw out snow melt. All witnesses reported that most of the snow in the area had melted well before the flood, and if there was any snow, it was in isolated snow banks up in the peaks of the mountains. So snow melt wasn't the cause here. The second cause potential was rainfall. In the three days leading up to the disaster, almost four inches of rain fell at the closest weather station to Buffalo Creek, which is Logan, West Virginia. It's about 15 miles northwest of Buffalo Creek. That seems like a lot of rain, right? And by all accounts, in a lot of places in the United States, it is. But it isn't really unusual for that area. They receive that amount of rainfall over a three-day period on average once every two or so years. So it's very possible that that dam had experienced that runoff before, and there's no evidence that there was enough rainfall in Buffalo Creek specifically to create the massive rise in water height behind dam number three. So we can pretty much rule out rainfall as what led the water to become that high and cause this disaster. So that leaves us with the discharge from the mine. The total amount of water estimated to be in the pond behind Dam River 3 was about 131 million gallons. The sheer amount of water combined with the poorly built dam and the complete lack of any adequate drain spillage is most likely what led to this. 
it, honestly, it was a matter of time before the dam failed. They built it on an unstable ground. They didn't do any sort of design, any sort of studies to find out how much water would actually be pumped into the area behind this this dam. Really, this was only a matter of time because before something like this happened. In the aftermath of the disaster, support and aid poured in from all over the country. And then the debate of who was at fault began. And I just want to make it clear who was at fault here. It was Pittston Coal Company and Buffalo Mining. In 1970, a Pittston employee wrote up a memo warning that federal regulations prevented creating dams with coal waste anymore. He was forbidden from sending out that memo. They eventually allowed him to send out that memo on Monday, February 28, 1972. Two days after the disaster. Super convenient. Pittston also claimed afterwards that the flood was an act of God. That is a direct quote. They claimed the flood was an act of God and said the dam was incapable of holding the water God poured into it. A retired miner, Reverend Charles Crum, said in his testimony, quote, I never saw God drive the first slate truck in the hauler. Basically, God wasn't dumping that coal waste to make the dam. Hell, Pittston and Buffalo didn't install any warning system for if the dams failed, which they already had twice before this. There had been reports in previous years that the dam was about to fail and warning was spread by word of mouth, but these were often disregarded and the dam didn't fail, just like the warnings from passerby this time. Except this time the dam would fail. Many of those warnings from people running away from the dam and driving away from the dam were ignored by the people in these towns. And Pittston and Buffalo didn't exactly endear themselves to the citizens of the valley after the disaster. Reports from the Army Corps of Engineers indicate neither entity helped with disaster recovery at all. On top of that, they rebuilt the railroad going through Buffalo Creek Valley as fast as possible to get coal moving out again. But they do share some blame with some other people. Federal and state inspectors also failed in their jobs to protect the innocence of Buffalo Creek Valley. They either didn't actually inspect the dams, or did so and decided they didn't care enough to do anything to make the changes necessary to make the area safe. They neglected to enforce laws over and over again, and if they did cite the companies for violating the laws, they did absolutely nothing to enforce the punishment for violating those laws. Pittston started making offers of compensation claims immediately after the disaster, but essentially only for property loss and only small offers. The people of Buffalo Creek then began a lawsuit against Pittston, claiming personal and property damage, but also psychological damage. Pittston attempted to file a summary judgment, basically ending the case, on the basis that because the people who survived the flood had not been actually touched by the floodwaters, literally, they had not been touched by the floodwaters, which is ridiculous in any case, they had no basis for claiming psychological damage. This was defeated, thankfully. Eventually, the lawsuit was settled before trial. The 600 or so individuals who signed on to the lawsuit received a settlement of $13.5 million, about $70.8 million today. Each person got about $13,000 a piece. A federal housing project was supposed to build 750 homes in the Buffalo Creek area. Uh, they built 17 homes and 90 apartments. Abysmal. The state of West Virginia 
filed a $100 million lawsuit against Pittston for damages to state property and to charge them for relief efforts. Uh, then Governor Arch Moore accepted a settlement for them for $1 million literally three days before he left office as governor. So he filed a lawsuit for $100 million, settled for a one-hundredth of that. $1 million. Ridiculous. Moore also promised the residents of Buffalo Creek that the state would construct a community center as part of the rebuilding effort. That never happened. The community center ended up being built, but it was paid for by the law firm Arnold & Porter from the proceeds they were paid for representing the victims. So Arnold & Porter took the money they made off of suing Pittston Cole from the settlement and built the citizens of Buffalo Creek Valley a community center rather than the state government of West Virginia following through on their promise to build the community center. It's also alleged, and I can't find a direct quote for this, but it's alleged in numerous reports, including the Citizens Commission, that Arch Moore claimed that the state of West Virginia was the real victim of the tragedy because of all the bad press the state was receiving from the disaster. Not the people that died, not the people that barely escaped with their lives, not the people that watched their loved ones drown, watched their entire livelihood disappear under pitch black waters. No, no. The real victim was apparently the state of West Virginia because it made them look bad. After the disaster, Congress passed the National Dam Inspection Act of 1972. The act called for inspections of all 50,000 or so dams in the United States by the Army Corps of Engineers. This didn't happen, shockingly, because one of the offices in the federal government refused to actually provide budget for the project. It was eventually provided budget once Jimmy Carter said, hey, you need to do this, but not much of it was actually done. And then just so we can really round out the end of this, a grand jury was convened to determine if charges should be brought against anyone for the disaster, including the higher-ups at Pittston and Buffalo and all that. But unfortunately, none were ever filed, which, again, this being West Virginia and how the rest of this has gone shouldn't shock you in the slightest. The effects of this disaster on the people of Buffalo Creek were studied by psychiatrists and psychologists and sociologists for years. This led to extensive research into what was then being newly discovered as survivor guilt. Many of the victims of the flood had lost their entire family. At least 11 different families lost more than four family members in the flood. Things like this can often lead to survivors wondering why they made it out, why they were lucky, why they weren't dead as well, and feeling immense guilt about surviving while so many of their own family members and friends did not, wondering if they could have just done something different to save them, or if they hadn't done something so they could have died as well, or if something of their friends hit a family member or friend and killed them. One survivor worried that her mirror had been the one that had decapitated her friend. This is the kind of stuff that survivors go through, especially survivors of disasters. Ones like Buffalo Creek, where several of them made it out because they were able to get to higher ground and then had to watch as their family members behind them got swept away and drowned, some of them never being found, 
many of them being mutilated almost beyond recognition. This is the kind of stuff that leads to survivors wanting to end their own lives, wanting desperately to have not been the one that survived, feeling all this guilt that they need to do something so spectacular with their lives because they're the ones that survived, they must have been chosen. And that this disaster is one of the first ones that helped to give psychology and psychiatry and sociology the ability to study and understand and gather information on how to treat this disaster, this mental health issue from this disaster. This also leads to divorces and fights and arguments, and it leads to people blaming themselves and each other for the disaster. There were several wives that reported that they blamed their husbands for the disaster for not knowing that it was going to happen, even though they had absolutely no idea what was happening. Nobody did. I mean, the people looking at the dam probably did, but the people that did the warning knew what was going to happen, but oftentimes they were ignored. And there were several husbands who reported that their wives treated them differently because maybe their wife's family survived and his family didn't, or the husband's family survived and the wife's family didn't. That was super common throughout the Buffalo Creek Valley, especially in the aftermath of this, like the immediate aftermath. And then became the coping mechanisms, drinking, drugs, all kinds of stuff like that, that the guilt of surviving weighed down on them and led them to take options that shouldn't be options of how to deal with something like this. So the Buffalo Creek Valley disaster really helps psychologists and psychiatrists to understand how to treat these victims. And this also led to understanding and research into what, at the time, they were calling psychic impairment. They realized that the survivors of the Buffalo Creek flood had very similar symptoms to returning Vietnam War veterans. Psychic impairment would become known as post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And the study and understanding of the Buffalo Creek survivors was instrumental in discovering ways to treat and help PTSD patients in the 70s. Many Buffalo Creek survivors had recurring nightmares of the wall of black water coming at them, hearing the towns being ripped apart while they were asleep, sometimes even when they were awake. They'd lay there in bed screaming for help as they can see the black mass coming at them again, unable to move and unable to run away. Many victims became afraid of rain. If it would rain at night, the entire towns that were rebuilt in Buffalo Creek would stand on the porch and watch it just to make sure that the flood isn't happening again. The whole town would be awake watching the rain, waiting for that rumble in the distance, indicating that that flood was coming again. They're constantly afraid of that rumble. Some of them can't be around explosions or it'll trigger memories of that destruction again. They'll have images that flash in their mind of their towns being completely swept away seeing their family members just swept away, sucked underneath that black flood of water, never to be seen again. There are numerous stories of one family member being able to make it just inches higher than the water and watching as their mother or their father or their children or their husband or their wife or whoever was sucked underwater just inches behind where they were. And they'll see that again as it rains hard or they hear the sound of rushing water.
That's what PTSD is. You start to see the things over again. And this Buffalo Creek Valley disaster is when our understanding really started to take off, along with working with Vietnam War veterans to understand just how PTSD affects the human brain. This disaster really affected the people of this area. They, numerous, said that they loved this area. They loved being in the valley. It's beautiful. Appalachia is a beautiful place. But they couldn't get past the image of that black wall of water just rushing at them. They looked down the valley and they'd have flash images of just towns being blown apart coming at them with absolutely nothing they could do about it. And this means nothing about the people that lived there. These people were resilient. Afterwards, they had organized ways to cope with the disaster and help each other out. Quilting sessions, things of that nature, group activities, community outreach, stuff like that to help each other get through what was horrible, horrible experience. These people were resilient and strong, and they worked hard to get back to where they were beforehand. Now, Buffalo Creek Valley is still sparsely populated. There is a memorial there for the victims of the tragedy. And in an interesting turn, it has become one of the most popular trout fishing spots in the entire state of West Virginia. Considering where this was, with all of that pollution and debris and whatnot coming down that valley from the very beginning in 1947 to the day of that disaster, that it has become a place of peace and tranquility is a wonderful thing. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Disastrous History. It's Disastrous H-S-T-R-Y, so Disastrous History Without the Vowels. Also on Instagram, Disastrous History, spelled correctly. And on TikTok, Disastrous History, where I do some short videos on disasters that won't get covered in the podcast because there's just not enough information. And also some disasters that will be in the podcast at a future date. You can also go to my website, disastroushistory.com where you can read transcripts of the whole episode if you'd rather not listen to me talk there's also some photos there that you can see what the disaster looked like and if you want to suggest a future episode you can send me an email at disastroushistory at gmail.com or just want to let me know how I'm doing or if you have any suggestions that would be great as always remember to stay safe and always check your smoke detector batteries